Okay, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 6. And I just want you to know I had hopes of of preaching through down at least to verse 36. I thought I could probably do 38 and then I started studying and I chopped it in two and then chopped that in two and chopped that. So I'm going to preach one-eighth of what I thought I was going to teach and that's not very promising as far as getting through the book quick, but it's... It's good nonetheless, and I think you'll be blessed as we go through this section as um, Jesus gives some very, oh, shocking, I think would be a good term to use words about how we are to love those people who do us ill because of our godliness. The elders, in order to excel in their shepherding skills, will, throughout the year, if somebody finds a good tape, we'll, we'll give it out, or an article, or something. And, and this year, we're reading through uh, three different books that relate to shepherding. And one of them is, it's a small but very painful book called Agape Leadership. And it was written by David Peterson and Alexander Strauss. It's a small biography, a select biography of a man named R.C. Chapman. And R.C. Chapman was a very wealthy individual who pretty much, <clears throat> not pretty much, he did. He gave up all of his wealth and went into the ministry. And writing about R.C. Chapman, uh, these men have constructed a number of uh, stories from his life and kind of just taught with some lessons with them in this little tiny book. Um, This is one of them. They write, The natural human response to being insulted or spit upon are anger, retaliation, self-justification, or withdrawal. But Christians are to respond differently. They are to act like Christ, as Chapman wrote, to forgive without upbraiding, even by manner or look, is a high exercise of grace. It is imitation of Christ. To be sure, not everyone liked Robert, liked Robert Chapman. One such person, a grocer at Barnstaple, became so upset at Chapman's open-air preaching that he spit on him. For a number of years, the grocer continued to attack and castigate Chapman. Yet Chapman continued on in his ministry and, when the opportunity presented itself, reached out to bless the grocer. The opportunity arose when one of Chapman's wealthiest relatives visited him in Barnstaple. The visit was more than just a social call. The relative wanted to try and understand what Chapman was doing. When he arrived at the house by the horse-drawn cab, he couldn't believe that the well-bred Chapman lived in such a modest home in an impoverished neighborhood. Yet Chapman warmly invited him in into his clean, simple home. And as they talked, Chapman explained what it meant to live in dependence on the Lord and shared how the Lord always met his needs. As the relative was leaving, he asked if he could buy groceries for Chapman, who gladly agreed. But Chapman insisted that the groceries be purchased at a certain grocer's shop. Yes, the grocer who had so vehemently maligned him. Ignorant of the previous interactions between the grocer and Chapman, the relative went where he was directed. He selected and paid for a large amount of food and then told the grocer to deliver it to R.C. Chapman. The stunned grocer told the visitor that he must have come to the wrong shop. But the visitor explained that Chapman had sent him specifically to that shop. Soon the grocer arrived at Chapman's house where he broke down in tears and asked for forgiveness. And that very day, 
the grocer yielded his life to Christ. Now that is a convicting story. That is a killer. That is something, isn't it? You read a story like that and you think to yourself, how could I ever be that godly? Could I ever do that? Well, not only can you do it, but you must do it. And God calls all people who are Christians to act this very way. And even though when you read a story like that, it just seems like jumping to the moon. You know, it might be something you'd want to try, but you're not getting there and you know it. Well, Jesus was there. R.C. Chapman was there. And many people throughout history were there. Learned how to love their neighbors, not perfectly like Jesus, but by the grace of God, learned how to love their neighbors and even their enemies. And sometimes at great personal expense. And we just finished the Beatitudes and the Woes. The Beatitudes were a series of blessings pronounced upon those who have God's saving grace working in their life. And that saving grace sometimes causes us grief. It causes us pain. And sometimes it leads to persecution. Then after Jesus talks about these blessings, he talks about woes. Woes that come upon those who don't have God's saving grace in their life. And though they may have happiness and contentment in this life. God's judgment is upon them. But we have learned that we are blessed when we are persecuted for righteousness sake, just like Chapman, who was doing nothing more than telling people how to escape the wrath of God to come, how to get to heaven. That is a good thing. And yet he was persecuted for it by this grocer. And being persecuted for righteousness sake is a blessing because it shows that Christ's work of grace is working in us, that we are like Christ, that we are shining his light to the world, and the world is seeing that, and they hate us. But the one who is loved by the world speaks like the world, lives like the world, and the world loves them. Wolves get along. With other wolves. But you throw a sheep among them. And the sheep gets devoured. And Jesus doesn't want us though. To merely realize that. That being a Christian. That knowing him. Is a matter of just hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And being grieved over our sin. And being persecuted all the time. It's not a matter of just having these internal things come upon us. And external things upon us. There's something more. Being a Christian and having God's grace in our life is about doing things for the glory of God. It's about acting in a right manner. And so what he is going to do is he's going to explain to us in this text just how to go about dealing with people who don't like us because we are Christ-like, because we are godly. What do you do? Do you, do you, do you strike back? Uh, do you yell and scream? Uh, you know, seek revenge? Hire somebody to beat them up? I mean, what do you do? How do you go about dealing with the trials and oppositions that come upon you for being a Christian? Well, let's look at the text and we'll read it. And I just want to warn you that at first uh, reading, this is going to probably be rather shocking. And I think that's why Jesus said it. 
Look at verse 27 of Luke 6 and follow along. But I say to you here, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. Whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt either from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you. Whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies. Do good. And lend. Expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. And do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will not, and you will be pardoned. Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour out into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, for by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. All right, well, that's about as convicting a passage as you might ever come across. And it all focuses around verse 31. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you, which we all know as the golden rule. You bet. And we might also uh, describe this as the golden rule of love or the golden rule of mercy. Look at verse 27. I say to you here, love your enemies. And if you look down in verse 35, but love your enemies. Look at verse 36, be merciful. End of verse 38. Make sure that you give to others generously so that it will be given to you generously. The whole text focuses around this idea. And this whole idea is what's driving the whole section. Jesus gives eight examples in the first part of this passage. Eight examples to describe or help us understand what it means to love somebody else. How to apply the golden rule. Then he goes into three ways of not loving other people. Then he gets into some motives. Then he gets into some rewards. And then he gets into some other things, which we'll get to later. The point Jesus is making is we need to love other people. And who is Jesus speaking to? Well, if you look at the text in verse 27, you'll see that it starts out with a little three-letter word, that word but. And in the Greek, there are several words that might be translated this way. And this is the strongest of them all. It is a strong contrast word, but in contrast to what? What has come before? What has come before? Jesus has just pronounced woe on people who don't know Christ who display in their lives the characteristics of those with no saving grace. And so when he says, woe, 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 but I say to you who hear, notice he does not say, 
But I say to you who are here, he's not talking to the people necessarily who are just present. He's speaking to a subcategory. Those who are in contradistinction to those who are going to receive the woes of God, which he earlier said are those who are blessed, true believers. He says, but I say to you who hear. So Jesus is talking about believers, those who hear. Now he's not saying, now I want all of you who are not deaf to listen to me. That's not what he's saying. The phrase you who hear does not just mean, um, you know, you have the ability to hear sounds. That's not what it's talking about. He's speaking to those with spiritual understanding. Remember, this is a text that's talking about spiritual truths. So he's using a lot of things in the world to illustrate spiritual truths. And he's talking about spiritual understanding. Well, there's only one class of people who have spiritual understanding. Who is that? Believers. Yeah, believers. You got it. Then there's a word for that spiritual understanding. When believers have this spiritual understanding, there is a word that theologians give to it. And it's called illumination. Think of, you know, you walk into a room and you turn on the light. Illumination. Okay. That's what it is. And illumination is the consequence of being saved. When somebody is metaphorically spiritually resurrected from their uh, spiritually dead unbelieving state to their new spiritual state, they receive what is called the illumination of the Holy Spirit. That is, God grants them the ability to understand, experience, know, and be changed by the Word of God. Where before... They never had that. And then after, they do. When you listen to people's testimonies and, you know, at baptisms or whatever, or you're talking to people about how they came to Christ, you'll often hear them say something like this. Yeah, you know, I'd, you know, dabbled in religion or I'd gone to church and I'd, you know, memorized verses when I was little or whatever. And uh, I tried reading the Bible, but it just didn't make sense to me. And then through a series of events, they come to saving faith in Christ. And then what happens? Oh, man. They read their Bible and they go, could you believe what's in here? Look at what it says here. And they go, oh, man, that is so good. That is so awesome. That is so convicting. That is so wonderful. And then what do they do? They run off to their friend and say, hey, look what I found here in Romans, man. Check this out. And their friends look at them and go. What? (laughs) The friends, of course, don't have the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. And we instantly, a lot of times when we come to Christ, we instantly forget what it's like to not know the scriptures like a believer. We forget to remind ourselves that before we became to Christ, the word of God was a dead word to us. Oh, yeah, you can know the stories. Oh, yeah, you can become a Greek and Hebrew scholar. You can memorize verses. That's not a problem. What I'm talking about is looking into the word and having it become alive to you, to change you, challenge you, convict you, encourage you, make you more godly. Unbelievers know nothing of that. It's dead. They're dead to the word. They're just dead. Herbert Lockyer, speaking of the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit, has written this. Quote, without a doubt, there are many things, even about the Bible, one can know apart from the revelation of the Spirit. 
But for the deep insight into the secrets of God, we are entirely dependent upon the divine revealer. As it has been expressed, the horse and its rider may see the same magnificent piece of statuary in the park. The one may be delighted with it as a work of human genius, but upon the dull eye of the other, it makes no impression. And for the reason that it takes a human mind to to appreciate the work of the human mind, likewise, only the Spirit of God can know and make known the thoughts and teachings and revelations of God, end quote. That is so good. That is so good. You're on your horse, you go up into the park, you look at this incredible piece of artwork there that somebody with great effort and great genius and great artistic talent carved this incredible thing out of stone and you just marvel at it and the horse looks at it and says lump i mean that's it the horse just looks at it and thinks it's object thing in the way that's all well that's how it is for people who don't know christ they look at the scriptures and they go lump thing in the way um, and then believers look at it and go, oh, hello, look at this passage here. Oh, look at this. Ooh. They're, they're looking at it and go, yeah. Oh, look at this psalm here. Oh, let me read this to you. Let me read this to you. Oh, isn't this encouraging? I guess. Turn over to Luke 8.8. 8. This is just, I just want to show you. That Jesus uses this address to people that know the truth, that have spiritual understanding. He says at the end of Luke 8, 8, just look at the last line here. This is the parable of the sower. He says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, is Jesus saying anybody who has these little, you know, cartilage appendages sticking out the side of their head? Is that what he's saying? No. Is he saying anybody who uh, isn't deaf? No, what he's saying is, is if you have spiritual understanding, then understand what I am telling you. He's speaking to a select group of people among the whole, just like he is in our text. Turn over to Matthew 11, Matthew chapter 11. I just want to show you some scriptures on this because this is a, the doctrine of illumination is a very important doctrine. And I discover that a lot of people don't even know what it is or they haven't even heard of it. In Matthew 11.25, Jesus says this. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Now, notice right there. This tells us that God, the Father, purposely hides the truth from some people and reveals it to other people. Jesus goes on, verse 26, Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. What way? Hiding truth from some and revealing it to others. Verse 27, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. Then notice this, And anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Did you see that? You cannot know Christ unless the Father wills that you know Him. Turn over to Matthew 13. Matthew 13. This is the parable of the sower. 
Look at verse 10. Now, think about this for a second. Jesus is out teaching. He's got these big crowds following him. And you'd think, oh, he just wants, he should just get to the point. He should just tell them flat out, be clear, simple, concise, and just lay it on them. The problem is, is that's not what he does. The problem is, is Jesus is out and he starts speaking in all these parables. And the disciples are watching Jesus do this and they're thinking to themselves, why? Why are you doing this? I mean, what, just tell them. What's this, you know, what's all these stories about birds and trees and planting? Tell us flat out. Verse 10, and the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? I mean, these people need to know the truth. And you're hiding it from them, it seems. Verse 11, and Jesus answered them to you. It has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, it has not been granted. Did you see that? There's only some people that have granted to them the ability to understand the things of God. These are the people who hear. Look down in verse 13. Therefore, I speak to them in parables because while seeing, they do not see. While hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not receive, perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull with their ears. They scarcely hear and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return or repent and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. Do you see that? Do you see the difference there? There is a class of people who hear and those who don't hear, spiritually speaking. The ones who hear are the ones who have God's saving grace working in them. Now I tell you this, and this is such an important thing to know, because whenever you're sharing the gospel with somebody, you need to know this or you will be extremely frustrated. You know, here you are, you have good intentions, you love this person, you you finally get this opportunity and you think, oh, I'm going to share the gospel with them. So you explain everything out. And they look at you like lump (laughs) thing in the way. And okay, so then you say it a different way. Lump thing in the way. Or maybe they even get mad at you. And you can feel guilty. It's like, oh, maybe I didn't do it right. Maybe I did. Listen, you will never, ever grant anyone illumination. You can't do it. It's not your job. You can't grant them the ability to understand. That is always God's job. It's your job to present the truth. It's God's job to make it alive in their heart so they can understand it and be saved. And don't take that responsibility on yourself. You, you will be under this huge burden all the time thinking, oh, I should have said this. Oh, I should have given another verse. Oh, I should have... Listen, God has used a lot of lousy gospel presentations to bring people to Christ. Just say something. Do a lousy one if necessary, but do one. Turn over to John chapter 6.
John chapter 6, verse 44. The Jews are having problems with Jesus. He's calling himself the bread of life. And man, they're just thinking, what in the world is going on here? John six forty four. Jesus answered, said to them. Oh, that's 43, sorry. Uh, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. Did you see that? You cannot come to Christ unless God the father draws you, period. No one can come to Christ unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on that last day. So in other words, listen, if God does call you, you're coming. (laughs) You will be raised up on the last day. Verse 45. It is written in the prophets, they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father, comes to me. Do you see that? There are certain people who come to Christ. Those are the people who are being drawn by the Father, who are being taught by God, who hear the truth. Those are the people that Christ will raise up on the last day, and those are the people who come to Christ, and only those people. So when you're sharing the gospel, remind yourself frequently, you cannot grant people illumination. That is the Holy Spirit's job. Turn over to John chapter 8. Here Jesus is again dealing with the Pharisees and he is exposing them. And in John eight forty three, we read this. Jesus speaking to them says, why do you not understand what I am saying? Then he answers the question. It's because you cannot hear my word. Now, you can imagine what they're thinking to themselves. We hear you just fine. Our ears aren't plugged. We're not deaf. Notice what Jesus says. He now explains why they cannot hear his word. You are of your father, the devil. That is pretty direct, isn't it? And you... And you want to do the desires of your father. And then it goes talking about how the father was a murderer and the father of lies. And then verse 45, because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. The whole point is this. There are some people who are children of God and children of God are able to understand the things of God because they have the spirit of God within them. There are other people who are of their father, the devil. They cannot understand. Because they are of their father, the devil. And there's only those two categories. You know, Jesus' boldness here in evangelism is amazing, isn't it? You can imagine sitting down with that co-worker you've been wanting to witness to for a long time. And say, yeah, you know, I'm kind of interested. Well, I just want you to know your, your problem is you're, you're a child of the devil. <laughs> and you do the desires of your father, the devil. And you need to repent. And you know what? That'd be a true statement. Jesus asks the question and then he answers it. Turn over to Acts 16.14. Acts 16.14 is a great example to show how God moves in someone's heart when the word is being taught or preached so that they can understand. This is Acts 16.14. Paul is preaching. There's a woman there. 
Look at verse 14 of Acts 16. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. Notice this. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Who did it? The Lord. It wasn't Paul's great preaching. It wasn't Paul's great oratory. No. Paul gave the message, yes. But who opened her heart? The Lord opened her heart to respond to things spoken by Paul. That's how it always is. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 2. In 1 Corinthians 2, Paul explains his methodology for evangelizing the lost. And as he's explaining his methodology... He's he's reminding the Corinthians of how he came to them and how he led them to Christ and what he did and didn't do and what he focused on and what he didn't focus on. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 2. And, um, well, just look real quick at verse 6. He says, we speak the wisdom... Uh, we, we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. Our wisdom, however, not of this age. And he's talking about the, um, wisdom of God. Verse 7. We speak the, uh, God's wisdom. And then he, um, goes down. Look at verse 10. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. So he's saying, listen, we speak the things of God. We know the mind of God. We have the wisdom of God. And now he's going to explain why unbelievers have Not this wisdom, and believers do. And this is what he says in verse 11. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of a man which is in him? Now just stop there. Now try reading the person's mind next to you. Try a little bit harder. You getting anything? No. Uh, We can't read each other's mind. Okay, That's all he's saying. He's saying, you know, um, you try and read somebody else's mind. You can't do it. Why? Because the only person who knows what you're thinking is you. Okay? Other people can't read your mind. That's obvious. That's his whole point. Even so, in like manner, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. And guess what? The only person who knows what God's thinking is God. Okay? That's his whole point there. Look at verse 12. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. Oh, we have God's spirit dwelling in us. And now we have somebody resident within us who knows what? The mind of God. So that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Paul is saying believers are given the Holy Spirit of God so they can know the truth of God, the mind of God, revealed in what? The Word of God. The Bible is God's mind written down. The problem is, is if you don't have the, the Holy Spirit, the Scriptures are a lump to you. It's like trying to listen to, you know, an FM station with an AM radio. You just can't get any. It's the wrong thing. It doesn't work. Then we come to the key verse in verse 14. Paul is now going to explain why unbelievers can't understand the word of God. And he says this. But the natural man, and this word natural man literally means the unspiritual man. That is the man who doesn't have the Holy Spirit in him. 
and who is controlled not by the Holy Spirit, but his fleshly desires. But the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. The Greek word here is moria, the word we get moronic from. They're stupid. This is dumb. What is this whole Bible thing? And it says here, and he cannot understand them. Notice he won't understand them. He can't. Why? Because he's an animal receiver. He's a horse. He can't understand them. And the the Greek literally reads, he does not have the, the dunamis, the power, to experientially know the truth. He, he can't even, within himself, there's nothing he can do to fix this spiritual deadness in him. He can't fix himself. He can't make the word of God come alive to him. That's what it's saying. He can't know it. He cannot do it. It's over. Why? Well, he says, because they're spiritually appraised. And this is a quote, unspiritual man. Verse 15. But he who is spiritual, back to believers, appraises all things, and he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that we we will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Why? Because we have the spirit of Christ where? Dwelling in us. Dwelling in us. Illumination is the important doctrine that every believer needs to know because when you're out sharing the gospel with people, if you don't know this doctrine, you will be continually frustrated when people don't come to Christ. You know, sometimes I share the gospel with people and they just look at me like, lump. I mean, that's it. You know, they just, they look at you like, mm, mm. You know, that's it. That's it. Just, you know, mm-hmm. Other people... They look at you. Some people, it seems, I mean, you can't even get the gospel out. You can tell God is drawing them. The spirit has come upon them. They just break down. They cry. They weep. They see everything crystal clear. They see their sin. They see Christ. They see their need for a savior. Everything just becomes absolutely clear. And they just crumble under the weight of God's grace and they get saved. Now, I want you to know, I do not do that. And you do not do that. You may be blessed by being there and being the messenger of the truth that God uses to bring somebody to that condition. But you are never the person who grants them illumination, repentance, draws them, and opens their heart. Only God can do that. And so, when you're out there, get the gospel out. And even if it's a lousy job, it's better than nothing. And Jesus died of your sins. He was buried, rose again the third day belief. I mean, you know, it's something. <laughs> Hopefully, you know, you can go a little bit slower. Get something out there. And God can use that to bring them to repentance. When you hear testimonies, you hear people say, Oh yeah, I was reading, you know, Behold the Bohemoth in Job. And I just, oh, I was so convicted. I just gave my life to Christ right then. (laughs) Thinking, really? God is able to use some pretty shallow gospel presentations. But he needs to use something. So make sure you do your part and let God do his part. So back to our text, Luke 6. You didn't know there was that much stuff in that word here, there, but there is. And I had to cut it short because we had to get some done. Um, Luke 6, verse 27. But I say to you who hear. One more comment before we look at the text. Jesus in this section is not contradicting the word of God. 
Do you know what he is? Jesus is the incarnate word of God, right? And so this Bible, which is the word of God, is Jesus's words. And so when this speaks, God speaks. Jesus speaks. And Jesus, in this section, is not contradicting any other scripture in any other place. Jesus is a man under the law of Moses. He is living under that law perfectly. He is not disobeying that law. And he's not trying to overrule the law, change the law, or pitch the law. Or definitely not trying to have people disobey it. Now, I want to say that because as we get through here, there's some shocking statements. And Jesus doesn't give a lot of qualification. He doesn't give, you know, a lot of, um, um, you know, I don't know what you would call uh, disclaimers. He just says it. And when you look at it, you may at first think, oh, no, that doesn't sound good. And if it doesn't, it's probably because you maybe are understanding it incorrectly. Jesus himself said in Luke 17, 2, that it would be better for a person to put a millstone around their neck and jump into the sea than to lead one of God's little ones astray. And he's not doing that right now. Everything Jesus says is in perfect agreement with the law of Moses. So keep that in mind. Okay, here we are. The first thing Jesus says is this. He says, love your enemies. Now that's about enough to just take us out for the rest of the week. For the rest of our lives. Love your enemies. This is agape love as you might guess. Agape love was a word pretty much invented by Christianity to describe the unconditional self-sacrificing love that God and believers are to extend to other people. God always does. We are too. It is to do what is best towards somebody, not because they deserve it, not because of anything about them at all. It's to do what is best for somebody because God says so. To show no partiality, but to go to the scriptures, find out how to love them, and then to do that loving thing towards them. That's what Jesus is saying here. Love your enemies. Now, Walt talked about the parable of the Good Samaritan. I need you to turn there. I'm not going to go through the whole thing again, but look at, uh, I just want to point out something in Luke 10. Let's scan through verses 25 to 29. But notice the lawyer here um, is putting Jesus to the test and he's asking Jesus how he can have eternal life and Jesus says, what does the law say? And you know, how do you read it? And the guy says, well, here's a sampling of commands. Um, and he ends the command with this, and your neighbor as yourself. Now, Jesus right now knows something. The rabbis taught error in this area. The rabbis taught you were to love your neighbor and what? Hate your enemy. That was a common teaching of the day, which was wrong. That was wrong. The scriptures never teach that. And so Jesus says to him in verse 28, you have answered correctly, do this and live. Now, apparently the guy's conscience was kind of being pricked a little bit. And verse 29 
but wishing to justify himself, that is justify his own deeds and self-righteousness, he said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Obviously something has gone on here. Maybe when he said, you know, um, love your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then love your neighbors yourself, Jesus might have looked at him like, well, you doing that? So the guy tries to justify himself. And he says, yeah, but who's my neighbor? And then Jesus gives the parable of the good Samaritan, which is not really the parable of the good Samaritan. It's the parable of what? Who is my neighbor? Because if you look down at the parable, you will see verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said, go and do the same. So the whole parable is about who is your neighbor. And as Walt pointed out and is correct, the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. They were arch rivals, enemies. And Jesus' whole point is, is when you love somebody, you show mercy towards them regardless of who they are. Foe or friend, you love your enemies. You love your enemies. Now, you might think to yourself, but yeah, but what does it mean to love? I mean, if you're wishing to justify yourself, but but, but what is love? Well, let's remind ourselves. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8 It tells us what love is. And as I read, just sit there and just think to yourself how many feelings are here. There isn't any. They're all verbals, all action, words, all things you do towards somebody else to bless them. Now, I want you to know that a lot of people don't understand this. A lot of people with marriage problems, they don't understand this. Because if they did, they wouldn't have marriage problems. This is the solution. Love does not do what it's supposed to do because of anything anybody else does. They do it because God tells them to do it, period. You love and people like it, fine. You love and people don't like it, fine. You just keep loving. They hate you, you love them. They hate you more, you love them. They receive it and use you, you love them. You see that? Love is not conditional It isn't saying, well, I'll love you if you love me. That is not love. That's not biblical love. That's earning. That's wages. That's a business deal. If you have a business deal in relationships, then they fall apart. Because I'm telling you what, I don't care who you're married to or who you're having a relationship with. They're imperfect and they're going to sin against you. And then that will be the test of whether you're going to continue to love them unconditionally or not. Now listen to this. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. Love does not brag. It is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Keep that one lodged in your mind. It'll be coming into play shortly. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Why does it never fail? Because love is only about you doing what is right towards somebody else. Period. It has nothing to do about their response, whether they like it or don't like it or persecute you or yell at you or whatever. Love is about doing what is right. Period. That's why it never fails, because it never fails for you to do what is right. Amazing, 
Jesus says, love people this way who are your enemies. You've got to be kidding. Are you sure? Yeah, he's sure. Just like R.C. Chapman loved the grocer, just like the Samaritan loved his arch enemy foe, the Jew. The word enemies describes someone who hates you, is hostile towards you, who opposes you. Jesus, Jesus says, love them, do what is best for them. We serve an invisible God and the only way people are going to be able to see God is to see God working in you. That's it. Any God-hating atheist can hate their enemy, but it takes the grace of God to love our enemies and to be like Stephen, who while being stoned to death, said, Lord, forgive them. Now granted, in this section, Jesus is using some hyperbole. Do you know what hyperbole is? Hyperbole is something that you hear in the junior high group a lot. If you have a junior higher, you know what hyperbole is. Oh, man, there was billions of them. Billions? Huh? Yeah, they were everywhere. Everywhere in the universe. Well, there was three. <laughs> hyperbole is a way of overstating something in order to drive a point home. When I was uh, doing my doctoral studies, uh, I had uh, Dr. Jay Adams as one of my professors, and, and he, he made us read some of his books. And I was reading his books, and he makes statements in there that are so extreme. And I, whenever I read his stuff, I always thought, he's so extreme. He just, he just goes too far. This is just this is not right. And so finally I thought, you know, I'm just going to go up to him and just tell him where he's off. So I went up to him and said, you know, Dr. Adams, you know, I've been reading your book here on preaching and, you know, you've just made some statements here that this just isn't right. And he said, Jack, I, I see you still have your eyes. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah. He says, I can see you still have your hands. I'm still pretty clueless. Yeah. Didn't Jesus say to gouge out your eyes and cut off your hands if they cause you to sin? Are you trying to tell me you've never sinned? And I'm thinking, what is going on here? (laughs) He said, now, when Jesus made those statements, those extreme statements, did he say, no, I just want you to know, I'm using hyperbole here. I'm overstating the fact, okay, just to drive home a point. Did Jesus ever say that? I said, no. He says, then I don't have to either. (laughs) So I went slunking back to my desk. But this is what Jesus is doing here. The rabbis had, had taught them error for so long that the people were over here in a bad place. So Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, is jerking them over here hard. And is trying to snap them out to drive home a point. Being a child of God is not about hating anybody. That's what he's trying to say. So he throws enemies out there. Not only that, look at verse 27. Second thing, do good to those who hate you. Oh, brother. 
Do good to those who hate you? That sounds like some sort of scribal error that got crept into the text or something. And just in case you missed what Jesus said the first time, he says the same basic thing, but in different words. In fact, everything Jesus says in this section illustrates how to love God in an honoring way. And this is another command, just like the first one. Just like love, present active imperative, always be loving those who are your enemies. Now he says, I want you to do good. Always be doing good to those who continually show hatred towards you. Now that is a hard thing. Of course, our first desire is to get revenge when somebody hates us, right? Retaliate, get revenge, get defensive, get even. Just yesterday I was walking through the parking lot of this, I won't tell you where, but it was a parking lot. And um, and there was this guy, you know, Saturday, trying to do shopping Saturday, but you know, sometimes you have to. So I'm walking through this parking lot and there's this guy, he's got his blinker on, he's waiting to pull in the spot, this person's pulling out. You've probably been there and seen this. Maybe you were the guy. Um, and all of a sudden... Um, just as the car pulls out, the guy's just getting ready to go. This little zippy car zigzags through and pulls right in the spot. Well, this guy was very patient, seemed kind of godly at the beginning. And then the guy just lost it. I mean, he lost it. He started screaming obscenities at this person, bogging his horn, giving them, you know, universal gestures of hatred. The guy looked like his head was going to come off. His veins were sticking out. And I felt like, dude, chill, man. You know, listen, I parked way out there to avoid this. But if you want my spot, you can. They're all out there. Lots of them. The guy was just losing it. He was losing it. You ever had that happen? Oh, Yeah. You know, you're waiting, it's a hot, you know, you're kind of in a hurry and you're waiting, waiting, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, good, and you go to pull and all of a sudden, what comes to your mind? What comes to my mind is, I have a truck. (laughs) They have a compact. I'm going to tromp on the accelerator and crunch them into the next spot. There you are. That's what comes natural, right? What comes natural is get even, get mean, lay on the horn. But Jesus says, what comes unnatural, what comes from the grace of God working in you, is godly, patient, not take into account a wrong suffered response. And you know, there's a lot of times when people do us ill. I mean, within the bounds of the law, we're talking about within the bounds of the law. Jesus is saying, you know, let people rob you, let people, you know, do great acts of social evil against you. But, you know, there's people in our lives who do us evil. The guy at the parking lot, the cashier, the business deal, you know, yeah, buy this. It's great. It's a lemon, you know, and you don't find out and he's in another state. I mean, things happen. They show hatred towards you. The word hate means to detest or pursue with hatred, to have malicious, unjustifiable feelings towards others. And it's to not love somebody. That's all. Whenever you're not doing what is best for somebody, you're hating them. And so hatred comes in a lot of different degrees. And through our lives, you know, there's a lot of people, some nasty co-worker, some nasty neighbor, 
some relative, whatever it is, some person in your life who continues to show hatred towards you, hostility towards you, doesn't like you. And what does Jesus say? Those people need to be loved. One commentator wrote, quote, he who retaliates thinks that he is manfully resisting aggression. In fact, he is making unconditional surrender to evil, end quote. Think about that. You know, somebody does something that you don't like. And if you respond in the same way, think about that. Here this person does something that's wrong to you. And so then you think, I am going to what? Do the same thing back to them. Now you don't like it that they're that way. And you don't like being the recipient of that. And so what? You're going to become just like them? What? That's not right. You don't become like the very thing you hate in order to fix it. But that's the natural response. I'm going to become like that person. I'm going to be the mirror image of that person. I'm going to let them train me in ungodliness and respond in that same way so that they can see what it means to be a Christian. No, by God's grace, we will see the error of selfish retaliation and instead show supernatural love towards others. And in doing so, we will show them who God is. We will show them the power of Christianity and God's grace. Third, if that wasn't enough, verse 28, bless those who curse you. Oh, really? Have you ever done this? When I was going through here and I was thinking, have I ever done this? Have I ever done this? Like the others, it's a present active imperative. Always be continually blessing those who are always continually cursing you. The word curse means to pronounce doom, judgment, call down evil on someone, wish someone to be accursed, swear at them. Jesus says, if you have someone in your life that fits that description, speak well of them. What? That just seems so godly. So Christian-like, doesn't it? Don't try to run them down before others. Don't parade all their faults before your friends. Don't always be talking about them with bitter and angry malice. You remember what Jesus said when he was on the cross? Here he is. He's being crucified. They've tortured him. They've whipped him. They made him carry his cross. They nail him to the cross. They plunk the cross down in the hole. They pack the dirt around it. There's a bunch of people mocking at him, sneering at him. Come down from there. Save yourself. You remember what Jesus said? Luke 23, 34. Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That is amazing. It's the same thing Stephen did when they were crushing his brains out with rocks in Acts 7. The same exact thing. You think, that is just so not me. And you know what happened when Jesus did that? There was this guy who was also being crucified. When he heard Jesus say that, what happened to him? This guy is different. This guy is not your normal thief. Remember me. Instantly. He gets saved. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. And what else happens? The soldier, some guy down low, looks at him and says what? Surely this is the son of God. Jesus saved two people. 
right before he died because he offered a blessing to those who hated him. And that is why all of us need to strive to be this way. Because when you act in a godly way towards ungodly men, that is what shows them that Christianity is not a farce. That salvation does transform our life. That it changes us into new creatures. That it's not a joke and we aren't a bunch of hypocrites who are deceiving each other into thinking we're something we're not. That's why James says... We all need to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. So we need to bless those who curse us. Now, I just want you to know, we're out of time. I stopped at this point at the other service, so we'll do it now. Sufficient is the conviction of the day. But listen, when you leave here today, what do you need to remember? One, illumination. Illumination is when the light comes on. It comes on because of God's grace working in a person's life through the Holy Spirit, which enables us to understand the word of God. You need to understand that in your life and be thankful for it. And you need to remember that when you're sharing the gospel with somebody else and they don't understand, there's nothing you can do to give that to them. That is totally up to God. It's nothing you can do. And so don't try to take upon yourself that responsibility. Secondly, love your enemies. Try to live your life in such a way that people can see you respond in a supernatural, godly way rather than in your standard, worldly, anger, hate, revenge, bitterness way. Do good to those who hate you. Not just be passive about it when people do it, but seek like R.C. Chapman is to look for that opportunity. And if you run into that person or you have an opportunity to bless them, you do it. And then... Bless those who curse you. If you can find something to say, something to do that would be a blessing to them, then speak it out. If you can't, keep your mouth shut. And in doing that, you will show the world what it means to be a Christian and have God. You will, you will display to them Christ's likeness. And you know what will happen? More people will come to the Lord because God uses that kind of behavior. I mean, all you have to do is read through church history. And there's so many examples like that when people were killing Christians and came to the Lord because those people responded in a Christ-honoring way. So keep these things in mind. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for what we were able to learn in this text. What a great passage. And Father, I just know that um, it is your desire for all of us to learn how to love our enemies. It is your desire to for us to bless those who who curse us and to do good to those who hate us. And Father, I just pray that you would help us to live the life that you would have us to live. It comes so easy to be mean and angry and vengeful. And Father, just to instantly and unconditionally accept evil into our lives and our hearts and father respond to that and so i just pray that you would give us grace that all of us could live before you in a humble way loving other people who are even unkind to us in a way that would be a testimony of your grace working in our life and might be used by you to lead them to christ father we just pray all these things in your son's name amen